of my brokenness and my inability to fix myself. I'm chipped. I'm cracked. But I'm also deeply, deeply loved by God. And I'm trying not to be overly focused on the flaws, but rather on the one who forgave and fixes and who makes beautiful what is broken. We started this series last week focused on the fact that we are made in the image of God, that we are beautiful, imago Dei, and that is our original blessing. That's also where the Bible begins. It's where our story begins. It's also, by the way, where the story will end, with us being beautiful. But you don't have to go far into the story. In fact, two chapters after God shares how he made us in his image, just two chapters later, chapter 2, chapter 3, and we come to the story of the fall, where we who were made beautiful are now broken. And our scripture this morning is from Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to share that with you. It's Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 15. This is actually before the fall. This is the instruction that God gave to Adam and Eve before the fall. And I'm trusting that you're familiar with the story of the fall, so I'm going to give just the instruction prior to it. Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, or Genesis 3 rather, records the rest of the story, the fall, and we are all too familiar uh, with the fall out. Just as we stressed last week that everyone without exception is made in the image of God, everyone without exception is broken. Everyone. And I suspect that we have an easier time believing that we're all broken than we do that we're beautiful. In fact, I'll bet most of you have an easier time believing that you are broken more than you believe that you're beautiful. That's what we tend to focus on. And uh, we are fallen, sinful, broken, wounded, and wounding. And no one can escape it. Theologians call this original sin or inherited sin. The New Testament refers to this condition as the flesh, the old man, the sin nature, or even the sinful Adam in us. Sin infects and affects us all. Anyone with a two-year-old knows this, knows the reality of original sin. In fact, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that this, doctor, this, this Christian doctrine of original sin or inherited sin is the only Christian doctrine that can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's undeniable that everyone is in some way broken. And there are a number of aspects, by the way, of, of the fall. Um, things might have been different uh, had Adam and Eve not fallen, but there are a number of aspects of the fall that we might look at more closely. And I would encourage you, by the way, after the service this morning, uh, upstairs the adult class will be going into this a little bit deeper. And then on Tuesday night, uh, we'll go into it even more deeply yet. In fact, on Tuesday night, just to, for those of you who might want to come out for that, I'm going to focus especially on Adam's uh, response to God after, uh, after they have fallen, the first words out of Adam's mouth was, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And fear and vulnerability will be our conversation Tuesday night.
We'll talk about how that affects us personally, how it affects all of our relationships, fear and vulnerability. So come join us if you can. But the, what I want to focus on this morning with you is, and also illustrates the ways in which we are broken is the idea of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is it that God would not want us, want, not want man to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Maybe it seems obvious. I mean, disobedience uh, would be das- disastrous. Just obey. Uh, another thought might be the fact that God simply didn't want us to know evil by experience. And certainly we have come to know evil by experience. And it's not just in faraway places or awful events. We find it in ourselves, if we're honest. And don't think of evil only as, as, as heinous crimes against humanity, shootings and terrorism. The Bible's definition of evil isn't just reserved for those heinous things. It is anything that falls short of God. It is, it is all the ways in which we are broken and flawed and, and miss the mark. Imperfection, if you will. And uh, the scriptural understanding of evil is, as I said, it isn't reserved just for those heinous things. In fact, there's a real danger in seeing others as evil, but not recognizing it in ourselves. The Soviet dissident and, and Christian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote this. He said, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. It's in all of us. And those are good words for us to remember in these days when we are so divided and quick to cast judgment or to demonize others. And that brings up another important reason why God did not want us to have the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil is a knowledge kept for God and God alone. The point is this. Only God can judge perfectly and wisely. Once we have that knowledge, we corrupt it. And usually for our own favor uh, of what is good or what is evil. We're good at accusing others and excusing ourselves or identifying the bad behavior in others and exonerating ourselves. We see it immediately in Adam and Eve. They do not accept responsibility for what they have done. In fact, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. Because we have the knowledge of good and evil, we think that we're omniscient. We think omnisciently, as though we know all things, everything that there is to know about another person or people, and in our omniscience, we act as judge and jury. We do. And it ruins relationships. I'm going to, I think I've got time. I'm just going to add this story. When I was in college and seminary, back in those days, 70s, early 80s, one of the issues that the church was wrestling with at the time was divorce, divorce and remarriage. If you had asked me back then, you don't even, I'll tell you now, how I felt back then. Divorce was one of those things that was like probably at the top of the list in terms of what I saw as sin or evil, if you will. I mean, I had a visceral reaction to it. And, uh, and it was bad, and, and, and it, it was, that was bad enough, but then came the issue also of divorce and remarriage, which Scripture clearly teaches anyone who is divorced and gets remarried is, uh, commits adultery. And so the church was caught up in wrestling with all of this. And I remember, I remember visiting a church in South Dakota and sat through the Bible study, and the pastor that day was talking about divorce in the church. And he said this to his people. 
He said, stop judging. You don't know everyone's story or everyone's circumstance. Stop judging individuals in the church and stop judging the church. Because he, he said some of you assume that we're not doing our job of counseling or, or, or guiding people or helping them or, or what have you. He says, you, you're not privy to everything. You're not omniscient is essentially what he was saying. But don't we often think that way? We, we think that we're, because we have this knowledge of good and evil, we think that we know all things. And so it's so easy for us to judge other people even though we don't know the whole story or all the circumstances. We act as judge and jury. It's one of the reasons why God didn't want us to have this knowledge. God wanted to spare us of all the hurt, all the division that comes from our bad judgments. And by the way, this is really the story that I wanted to relate to you. It wasn't just what this pastor shared. But divorce found its way into my own family. My second to youngest brother, married for about three or four years, got a divorce. That was bad enough. Then about two years later, all the time I'm praying that they're going to be reconciled and come back together. About a year and a half, two years later, he gets married again. And because of where I was at at that time, I was judge and jury. There was no way I was going to that wedding. I can tell you it didn't do much for my relationship with my brother or my future sister-in-law. We're okay today. I finally figured it out. Friends, I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus said, you know, he didn't want us to act as judge and jury. He said, take the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's. Jesus said, do not judge or you will be judged. We may have some knowledge of good and evil, but we are really bad judges of ourselves, of others, even of God. So God wanted to spare us of all the hurt, the division that comes from our bad judgments. Now that isn't to say that we don't ever make, that we don't ever um, weigh things, that we don't ever make sound judgments. Of course, there are times to do that, and certainly there are things that absolutely are evil. Uh, but be, but we often vilify others, not even as again said, knowing their whole story, their hurt, their pain, while exonerating ourselves. And that was the sin of the Pharisees. They were always comparing themselves with others, judging between good and and evil, and Jesus showed again and again how tragically flawed their judgment was. And they missed who he was. They misjudged themselves. They misjudged others. In heaven there is no divided Supreme Court. You understand what I'm saying? God's judgment is always right and true. And by the way, God's judgment isn't always about anger and wrath at sin. Judgments, even in our courts, aren't always about punishing evil, are they? Sometimes it is about setting people free, acquitting them, making things right. Judgments are made with respect to issues of justice, what is right and fair. Sometimes judgments are made that bring hope and help and healing. So don't automatically think of God's judgment or justice as being only about wrath and punishment. Without downplaying the seriousness of sin, God is able to work all things together for our good, including sin and brokenness. Do you think that Adam and Eve's sin or yours or mine surprises or catches God off guard? God's story after the fall is not plan B. If you know the scriptures, Adam and Eve didn't ruin God's story. God already had the provision for it from the beginning. It's not plan B. Jesus Christ coming into the world 
was God's plan from the beginning. I'm not suggesting that sin isn't serious or that it doesn't have serious consequence, but it can serve God's purpose and our good. Unless we struggle or fail or fall in some significant way, we almost never mature uh, spiritually or acquire wisdom. People who are rigidly, people who are rigid rarely grow into spiritual maturity. I heard someone say recently that, it, that it's, the, it's the cracks that allow God's light to get in. There are consequences for sin, to be sure, but there are also blessings, which please don't take as an endorsement to go sin. The point is that God is greater than our sin. He can bring blessings out of our brokenness. Failing or falling isn't the end of the story, but it gives space for God to work. Often, Often when we do fail, when we fall, when we struggle, we become more aware of our need and desperation. We become much more understanding, patient, and gracious toward others who struggle because we get it. Our temptations and trials keep us on our knees, humble and relying on God for strength, for forgiveness, or simply trusting that God's grace is sufficient for our need. Remember Jesus said, I came to heal the sick and not the well. Jesus was never upset with sinners. Check it out. He was never upset with sinners. He was only upset with people who did not think they were sinners. Listen, our sins and mistakes are something to be pitied and healed much more than hated, denied, or perfectly avoided. If you don't understand that, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, talk with someone who's in recovery, an addict or an alcoholic. They'll enlighten you. Many of them thank God for their brokenness, their struggle. It was a huge price to pay, but it broke down their false self and opened them to healing and hope, to faith and love. In fact, many of them have a maturity of faith and wisdom that belies their years in Christ. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous is not without its flaws, but they have one huge advantage over the church. We come here week in and week out pretending that we have it all together. God forbid we should struggle or sin or fall or fail. The church is notorious for shooting its wounded. The church is often not a safe place to be real or vulnerable or transparent. I have to believe that in that regard, AA is closer to the early church than we are, or closer to Jesus' intention for the church than we often are. People come in and are welcome from all walks of life. They don't have to pretend. They can freely acknowledge their brokenness, their struggle. They are with people who struggle in the same or similar ways, who make no judgment, but who offer help and support. I remember one young person here at Zion, and I don't think this was a thought original to him because you probably have heard this before, but I remember having a conversation with, with a college student here at Zion some years ago who said the church ought to be more a hospital for sinners than a museum for saints. So can we please stop pretending? Stop pretending that we aren't broken. Now, that doesn't have to be our identity. In fact, let me say this. You do not have to stay broken or stuck in your sin. 
More than wrath or anger at sin, God takes pity on us. He has compassion and mercy on us because his judgment is right and true. He knows better than we do what we need and supplied it. He sent his son Jesus to forgive and to heal. God comes to us to forgive and cleanse, to heal and restore, to make whole and to make holy. Instead of heaping on us wrath and condemnation, God has lavished on us grace and mercy. That's his judgment. God entered into his story, which is our story, messy as it was and is. God, who made us in his image, took on our likeness. The word became flesh. He suffered with us and for us. He put himself in solidarity with sinners. He put himself in our shoes. And he who had no sin became sin for us. Jesus lived the life that we cannot live. He died the death that we deserve so that through his obedience we might receive mercy and grace, forgiveness and life, healing and wholeness. He is our Savior. Listen, He is our Savior in every sense of the word. Friends, we are beautiful and we are broken. And we will live into one or the other of those two identities, I think now or even in eternity. To be or not to be broken is the question today. You are not your brokenness. Jesus came to forgive, to cleanse, and to heal. He came to set us free, to give us life to the full. His grace saves us. His wounds heal us. His spirit breathes power and new life into our being. God can redeem our lives, even our brokenness. And there are ways that you can participate in God's healing process. To not stay stuck, if you will. To cooperate with how God wants to bring healing. Start with seeking forgiveness and affirmation. Protestants, unfortunately, got rid of the confessional. But Scripture is very clear on this. We're called to confess our sins to each other. That we might be healed. There is value, there is need for us to do that to confess our sins to each other so that we might be healed. Find someone safe that you can make confession to. Find someone safe that you can share with them your struggle and give them permission to ask you from time to time, and this is why you want to find somebody safe, give them permission from time to time to ask you how you're doing. Okay? Start there. There are other things you might do. There's pastoral care. There's a professional counseling if you need it, if if what you struggle with, what you're broken with, uh, the sin you may struggle with. You may want or need professional counseling. There are other resources available. We have the Healing Journey here at Zion. Uh, Great ministry. Uh, I hope sometime soon we'll be walking through the emotionally healthy spirituality again that we did about two years ago. Another opportunity to reflect and go deeper and, and, and heal what is broken within Uh, Those of you who may struggle with any kind of addiction or brokenness, there's the We Believe meetings as well, and there's increasing number of resources available for those who struggle with addiction or alcoholism. Listen, you have nothing to fear or be embarrassed about if you avail yourself of any of these helps. 
I am broken like you, and I have benefited personally from confessing to others. I have benefited from, from, from uh, talking with my pastor. I've benefited from uh, professional counseling. I've been through the emotionally healthy spirituality. I did the healing journey a little over, a little, about a year and a half ago, and I meet regularly with a spiritual director. All of this because I don't want to stay stuck. I want God to continue bringing into my life cleansing and healing and wholeness in every area of my life. And I ask God to bring that healing and to continue being formed in me. And I I believe this. I believe there's a sin in not wanting to grow and not growing and not availing ourselves of, of the means that God has given to us to move toward greater healing and wholeness. God made you to be beautiful glorious and he treasures each and every one of us God wants you well God wants you whole God wants you holy he loves you as you are but doggone it he's going to make you whole if you let him amen We're going to um, take a little time this morning um, for prayer. And uh, 